You're listening to an ACCA podcast. I'd like to say um, hello, everyone, and thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Max Delaney. I'm Artistic Director and the CEO at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you to this inaugural think tank associated with ACCA's longer-term research project leading towards the exhibition and publication Who is Afraid of Public Space, which is planned for the Australian summer of 2021 into 22. This afternoon, we find ourselves in a new conversational format and a new way of being public through the disembodied virtual space of Zoom. Nevertheless, before we begin, I would like to reflect upon the land where we usually gather, work and welcome our guests, the land upon which ACCA is situated and acknowledge the Kulin nations as sovereign custodians. I'd like to recognise their continuing sovereignty and connection to land, waters and culture and to extend our respects to ancestors and elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people who might join us today. This is the first webinar event as ACCA's doors are closed for the time being due to COVID-19 restrictions and public health measures. To keep the event running smoothly, I have a couple of preliminary housekeeping notes. Um, this session will be recorded um, and it will become available as a podcast series. So if you do experience any technical difficulties through the proceedings, the recording will be published and available on ACCA's website soon. This event is also being Auslan interpreted and we'd like to warmly welcome our interpreters, Georgian Knight and Chelsea Turner, who'll be assisting us today. We're also joined by graphic illustrator, Sarah Firth, who will be capturing some of the ideas and terms in the discussion through a live drawing. A tip for viewing this is to use the side-by-side -side mode so you can see both the live drawing screen share and the panel members as well. This can be accessed by clicking the green view options button at the top of your screen. Following presentations from and discussion amongst our guest panelists, uh, which will last for approximately 45 minutes, there'll be time for questions from audience members, which will be conveyed by my colleague and ACCA curator, Miriam Kelly, from questions and comments submitted in the Q&A feature as the event progresses. The chat feature is not active today for this event, so please submit all questions and comments through the Q&A feature. Please note that we may not be able to address all questions given the timing, but rest assured that questions and comments will be collected and taken on board to inform future think tanks, as well as the research and development of the project. So we do strongly encourage you to take part via the Q&A feature. So now to introduce um, Who's Afraid of Public Space, which continues the big picture series of exhibitions at ACCA, inaugurated with Sovereignty in 2016-17, and followed by Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism in 2017-2018. ACCA is currently developing Who's Afraid of Public Space, a major exhibition, publication and research project exploring the role of public culture the contested nature of public space and the character and composition of public life itself. Presented over ACCA's summer season of 2021 into 22, the exhibition will engage contemporary art and cultural practices to consider critical ideas as to what constitutes public culture and who might it be for. The project will explore and animate recent global debates and phenomena, including the increasing incursion of private interests into the public sphere, the dynamic relations between urban design, surveillance, regulation and gentrification, as well as unsanctioned counterpositions, improvisation and play. It will explore ideas of community, collectivity and the commons, 
as well as the cultivation of fear in media and urban space. It might also explore ideas related to freedom of speech, assembly and censorship, or the broadcasting, the public broadcasting of private lives. It might explore the ideas of monuments and memory, as well as the ways in which technology, knowledge and mobility impact and transform our understanding of public space, culture and values. The exhibition adopts a collective curatorial model with ACA curators working collaboratively with a diverse group of artists, academics, curators and cultural producers who make up the curatorial advisory group. While centred at ACA, the exhibition will extend beyond the walls of the gallery into public space itself through engagement with and interventions into public and urban realms, mainstream and social media, as well as collaborations and partnerships with cultural organisations, community centres and academic contexts. Working with an assembly of artists, collaborators and partners, the project will be informed by a number of workshops and public think tanks to be presented over the course of the next 12 months. So to this end again, we thank you for joining us this afternoon for this inaugural event to start the conversation. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce um, members of the project's curatorial advisory group who will be our panelists and guest speakers today. Um, firstly, Dr. Marnie Badham is Vice Chancellor, um, the Vice Chancellor's Postdoctoral Research Fellow at the School of Art at RMIT University. Eugenia Flynn is a writer, arts worker, community organiser and PhD candidate at the Queensland University of Technology. Grace McQuilton, lecturer in art history and theory and the leader of the Contemporary Art and Social Transformation Research Group in the School of Art at RMIT University. Nikos Papastiadis is a cultural theorist in the School of Culture and Communication and director of the Research Unit for Public Culture at the University of Melbourne. And Noor Shkembi, artist, curator and PhD candidate also at the University of Melbourne. And I'd also like to acknowledge uh, Timothy Moore and Eugenia Lim, also on the curatorial advisory team, who are unable to join us this afternoon, but will be joining us for future sessions. Each of our panelists have various roles as artists, curators, teachers and academics, writers, organisers and activists, embedded in diverse artistic, cultural, social and political contexts. So to open proceedings, I wonder if I could ask each of our guests to introduce yourself, to reflect from your own perspective on the role of public culture, its importance, and what you see as key issues or questions at stake in our current moment. And so in this first instance, I might ask you to reflect um, back to another era, pre-COVID, um, in your initial considerations of public space and culture. So perhaps to start off, could I ask Marnie um, to perhaps uh, start off proceedings? Thank you, Max, and um, great to be in such company with um, such good company with my colleagues here today. Also acknowledge the traditional ownership of the land on which I uh, work and live today, the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nations. Um, so I'll introduce myself quite briefly and hopefully that'll um, identify a few of the key concerns that I have currently in public space pre-COVID and also um, during this uh, unprecedented time. So as Max said, I'm currently working at RMIT University here in Melbourne. 
And um, my art and research and theory focuses uh, mostly on what we call art and social practice. So my activist work is around social justice issues. Um, my interest in uh, research around ethics and civics um, take uh, place in public space, primarily um, developing projects that um, find forms of engagement, dialogue and aesthetics that bring together disparate groups of people into dialogue. Um, I'm particularly interested in um, sort of uh, contested histories of place, um, stories of place, sovereignty, um, what this land means um, to people other than uh, necessarily the mainstream or decision makers on how we use public space, um, how is public space used um, um, in unintended ways by decision makers. So I'm interested in forms of um, cultural democracy that aren't necessarily mainstream. Um, my particular practice currently, I've been making a series of artworks both in Canada and Australia around cultural mapping and um, I guess I'd call it creative cartographies. Um, thinking about um, and literally registering forms of experience um, and emotions um, in public space that aren't typically registered. So I won't go into a lot of detail on that, but I guess the, the issues that are important to me um, throughout my um, practice and research are just amplified um, these days, Max. Um, I think the questions of inequity in, in our society and public space um, have just um, grown stronger during this time of pandemic. So the same questions um, pre-COVID were around sovereignty, unsheltered people, uh, people experiencing homelessness, environmental crisis, um, extreme weather, uh, gender in public space. Thanks. Thank you very much, Marty. That's wonderful. A great introduction. Um, can I ask Nikos perhaps to continue the consideration of public space and who might it be for? Thank you, Max. And I also would like to express my um, appreciation to be part of this group and acknowledgement to Indigenous owners of this country as well. Um, I'd like to begin by reflecting on the question of publicness and fear. The term public, of course, has a long history. It goes all the way back to Roman law and defines the way in which we think about space in the civic environment. Now, let's also extend the idea of public as a common area. And here, when we start thinking of common area, for most civilizations, the idea that we have fear towards the public or the common area is a contradiction in terms. Because after all, in the center of the city is where you were most safe. In the center is where people gathered to mix, to socialize, to exchange things and so on and so forth. It was what was on the outside of the city, beyond the city walls is where fear was lurking and, and ranging. <clears throat> so the idea that we have fear for the city and the center of the city in particular is something that only comes with industrial cities, with the big growth of industrial megacities in the 19th and early 20th centuries. That's the period when we start to think about fear of disease, especially in port cities fear of crime, like the Apaches that roamed in Paris in the 19th century, in the 18th century, or the idea of fear of insurrection, like the riotous mobs in Manchester and so on and so forth. 
By contrast, in the contemporary cosmopolitan cities, the idea of fear is also mixed with delight and diversity. So we no longer just fear what's inside our cities, but we also have a sense of that in the concentrated parts of the cities where diversity and difference thrives. And it seems to me it's this legacy of fear and loathing, of delight and hope, that is, the, that is sort of the crossroads at where we're situated in the contemporary city. Thanks, Nikos. Um, Eugenia, can I invite you to follow? Sure. Hi. Um, I think we're introducing ourselves first. So my name is Eugenia, and um, as Max spoke about in sort of his bio of me, I'm a writer and arts worker, and I do a range of different things. Um, I do a lot of writing and thinking about uh, Indigenous culture and thinking about um, working with communities and community engaged practice. Um, I think the idea of public space, you know, for me is an interesting one and listening to Nikos talk about that kind of history and um, mentioning the Romans and the idea of industrialization and cities and that sort of thing, for me, really provokes a lot of what I'm interested in, um, you know, that for me as an Aboriginal woman is an imposed, um, uh, imposed culture and it's an imposed um, idea and you can't undo the past is something that I've been thinking about recently and how do we uh, react to that. So, you know, uh, I come from a colonised people and we're still in a struggle in this country. Colonisation uh, isn't over and it's mutated. And the society that we have at this point, you know, if we're talking about pre-COVID, it really is, um, you know, a time when... Um, that foreign culture has set up. So we have these cities and we have this idea of public space. Um, and there's no understanding that there might be other understandings of space um, in Indigenous uh, ways of understanding space. Um, I don't think that we would think about it as what's public and what's private. We um, and we don't think about ownership in the same way. Um, uh, and so that's really interesting. And I think the way that ownership is used, um, well, the way that it has been used in the process of colonisation to demarcate space and to claim a space uh, for um, a sovereign, a foreign sovereign, and then the way that that has been used uh, by the nation, then by states, then by local um, governments, and then ultimately by individuals, um, is for me really fascinating, you know, that that sense of ownership defines what's public and what's private. And also that within that, there is a whole range of policing um, both um, policing in a figurative sense, but also physical policing as well, of who gets to enter public space and what they're allowed to do within that. So um, as much as for a lot of black fellows like me, 
you know, I observe my people always engaging in public space in lots of ways. But um, the way that when uh, Aboriginal people are in public space, how they're viewed, how they're policed, how their um, behaviour is characterised, perceived, how it may be reported in the press, um, and the fear that comes with that um, is really present for me and uh, something that I think about a lot. Thanks, Eugenia. Nora, I think perhaps that might be a, a, a segue to your interest as well. You've had a long-standing interest in the policing of public space and um, who might public space be for, who is able to happily exist within public space. Um, yeah, thanks, Max. Um, so I'll just quickly introduce myself. Um, my name is Nora and I'm a curator and writer based in Melbourne and currently undertaking a PhD in art history at the University of Melbourne, looking at aspects of um, continuity in Islamic art history and um, most predominantly in contemporary art. Um, look, my practice was built around not seeing a positive image of Muslims in the public sphere after 9-11. Um, yeah, unfortunately, um, there was a lot of media coverage that created a lot of tension and fear around the Muslim community as a minority community. And although there was a lot of conversations happening um, in the media and what was once a very private um, matter, so your religious practice, um, your religious identity became public fodder. So for me, the public space became a space where what was once something very private for me became public, but then what was in the public wasn't very um, positive, what was being reflected in the public space. Um, so my interest was in creating spaces for artists from minority backgrounds to uh, contribute to the cultural landscape in a way that they wanted to see themselves. And um, this idea of, you know, the public space, um, what Nikos was saying earlier, the centre or the public space um, or the public centre being a place of safety was actually quite the opposite for a lot of people from... Um, you know, that were identifiable as Muslim, um, people who appeared as Muslim, um, non-white people, um, just minorities in general because of the fear that was generated around um, difference and, you know, that people would feel nervous if they saw you on a tram or a train um, or in a public space. And... What happens when a conversation around a community becomes so intense, um, you no longer are an individual. And you are every Muslim that is shown on the television, um, people feel like you are them and they know you. And suddenly this right to being anonymous or like what I've, pre 9-11, what I felt was being able to go into a public space was the safety of um, 
being anonymous. You could go somewhere and walk around and kind of do what you wanted to do and mind your own business and you just kind of blended in the crowd and, you know, you could just be who you wanted to be. Um, yeah, so for me, the public space kind of inverted and became like a lens on like my private life and my private or, or the way I saw myself or the way I presented myself as a Muslim. So I found that quite problematic and really sort of wanted to start addressing that through the presence of um, culture and art from minority communities and in a way, um, yeah, trying to change, be present in that space in a different way. Thanks, Noor. Um, that might be helpful, um, Grace, leading to your interest in, in cultural difference in public space. Um, yep. Hello, everyone. Um, pleasure to be here. Um, I'm living COVID, so I've got a three-year-old in the background who might yell and shout at any moment, so <laughs> apologies for that. Um, it's a real privilege to be with these amazing people and to already hear um, their different perspectives, and um, I'd just like to acknowledge that I am on Wurundjeri land and pay my respects to elders past and present. Um, so really following on um, from a number of the things that have been said already, um, for some time, so I'm a, a historian and a writer and a curator, and I've done a lot of work in social enterprise and community development in the arts. Um, and for a long time now, um, I've been really conscious of the ways that um, public culture and public space are marked as much by forms of exclusion um, as inclusion and what could and should be um, a realm for the individual to connect with the collective um, and for a celebration of the diversity that makes up um, our culture. Often um, these realms, these spaces um, can be quite alienating um, and exclusionary, which Noor and Eugenia and um, Marnie and Mikosov Hall um, have spoken about in different ways. Um, I think the question of fear is quite interesting. It's something I've been thinking about for a little while. Um, I think there's so many layers to that in the contemporary moment, and this is thinking back pre-COVID, so let alone adding in the COVID dimension to it, but um, fear of the other, which you know, has spoken um, to quite beautifully, um, gender-based fear in public space, um, fear of street violence, um, the kind of use of fear politically to marginalise particular groups of people um, that serves a purpose, and we've seen that particularly with the South Sudanese and African communities and young people from those communities. Um, and I think um, sort of the fear of um, a true public, I guess, um, and what that, how that might impinge on the sort of commercial interests that are increasingly dominating, particularly our city spaces where commercial development um, is, has been running rampant. Um, and the line between public and private has been increasingly blurry. Um, 
So there's some of the things that have been percolating and concerning me um, for some time and that I think this exhibition could really unpack and explore in interesting ways. Thanks so much, Grace. Um, that um, rapidly changing relationship between public and private, I think, has been um, amplified in our recent, uh, in the last six weeks in our sort of COVID um, rapidly changing pandemic landscape, which we are currently negotiating. Um, where not only do we find ourselves socially distancing and in isolation mode, but we have also seen a radical shift from civic space of the public square to the virtual space of the digital commons, mm -hmm. hence our meeting today. Um, and these impacts and shifts will inevitably inflect the exhibition as we develop it and our lives in profound and enduring, but also as yet unforeseen ways. Um, on the one hand, we are possibly checking in and talking to each other more than ever and clicking through Zoom and phones and social media, which itself opens up a whole series of new questions regarding access, inclusion and participation. And on the other hand, as debates around the Australian government's COVID safe app have recently illustrated, Questions around privacy, data use and surveillance in the virtual realm are more important than ever. And we're also very much living in a distance, disembodied and increasingly divided body politic, where, for example, in affluent Western societies, some wealthy families have retreated to country and coastal houses. Uh, middle classes are able to retreat and continue to conduct their work from home. Um, while an increasingly precarious and marginalised community of essential workers and those working in the gig economy remain in public space, as well as frontline workers such as doctors, nurses and teachers and, of course, the homeless. So there already are a good number of things to reflect upon here in relation to public space and our transition to digital space uh, and new digital communities, but also the increasing inequality and, and also class divide. The COVID-19 pandemic has radically redrawn the social, cultural and economic landscape in which we all work with long-term implications. So I wonder if you would reflect on these radical shifts which continue to change on a daily basis. Um, yeah, just a few thoughts. Um, I can't remember where I read it, but it was a headline in one of the news articles recently. Um, from an academic in Melbourne and it was you know, you don't know what you've got until it's gone um, and I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of The choices we make now um, We can't undo um, the way that we change and, and affect um, our engagement in public space um, You know the measures sort of to normalize um, restrictions and surveillance, um, this will affect our society uh, in, you know, in many ways personally, but it'll also, you know, give the state, um, the police state, uh, more power and authority over our individual private lives um, than perhaps what we might be comfortable with. So I think we need to be very, very, very careful around the liberties and rights that we're willing to give up and those that we need to um, be very clear um, that we can't let go of. Um, you know, for instance, uh, working at a university right now, um, teaching in um, social practice, public practice, studio practice, what does that mean when we put everything online? Does that mean <laughs> that the students um, don't need access to facilities when we come back from the pandemic and so social isolation? 
Um, I guess where my where my thoughts have really been these days is around um, artists and culture makers whose practices, particularly to the core, focus on social and and um, cultural methodologies. So, for instance, social practice artists. Um, people who work in festivals. These are people who bring people together, question public space, um, reflect on, on where we're at collectively. More specifically, I've been thinking about um, broken value chains um, in art and culture industries. Um, for instance, um, artist collectives, indigenous art centers, that the very way that they work uh, is about being together. Um, and also supporting broader communities through that togetherness and exchange of content, stories, materials, and what have you. So, you know, there's some types of practices that we can't just pivot um, to go online. And, um, you know, it brings us to think about what we can do in terms of supporting culture and and arts into the future and, and really thinking about, um, is it about pivoting? Is it about adapting? Is it about resilience? Or is it really focusing on what matters and caring deeply about that? You know, is it paying artists rents or is it asking them to adapt their practices and um, do short-term projects in, in this space? So the cultural, the broader kind of cultural value chain is what I've been thinking about a lot. Thanks, Marnie. Nikos, sure. you, you, a lot of your work has very much spoken about those questions of intellectual empathy and physical collaboration and encouraging proximities and intimacies. And these are profoundly challenged um, as we now have anxieties around touch and, um, and being close to one another. Um, so I wonder if you might reflect on that. I think that's, that's true, what Marnie just said about careful what is done because how long before it's undone. And, um, and also how these changes affect our long-term understanding of social relations is very profound. Yeah. And, um, I mean, how many of us remember the shoe bomber, Richard Reed in 2001? But we all gladly take off our shoes every time we go through the airport these days, forgetting that that, was, that, that requirement was instigated by one single incident, you know, now 20 years ago, but we're still doing it as a ritual or rather than as a precaution. And it seems to me these are the sort of um, tensions that um, need to be um, highlighted as we go into this new phase. Um, of course, we'll have ongoing anxieties and possible traumas, and I'll talk about them later. But in the first instance, this pandemic has really accentuated the existing social divisions. And if we need a really simple um, illustration of those divisions, let's bear in mind the militarised response Australia produced in terms of evacuating the so-called residents and, and citizens from China and quarantining them offshore and comparing that process to the kind of blasé and almost blithely indifferent way in which white middle-class luxury boat people were led off the boats in Sydney. Now, that contrast between um, those two groups of people, the yellow people and the white people, demonstrate the profound distinctions between class and race that exist in this country. And in the art sector, the, the challenges are quite profound. We've already heard about this sort of damage to the ecology of performers and, and people who do exhibitions. But a lot of people subsidise their art 
by working in the hospitality sector, which of course also has been closed. So there's a double whammy there. And finally, I think we should also reflect on the way in which the so-called government has been responding, so-called, not the government is real, but the responses, um, I think questionable in the sense that the arts has exploded in the last two decades. It's exploded in the range of media, the spheres of engagement, the modes of practice that people like Marnie and, and Grace and Nora and, 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 and Eugenie have already referred to. But this has also blurred the boundary between art, politics and the everyday. And the funding agencies have really struggled to, to keep pace with this explosion. And what they seem to prefer to do is direct attention to not to the diversity and the complexity of art in its existing context, but to iconic institutions, to heritage practices, and to partnerships which can demonstrate a strong research on investment, return on investment program. So rather than reflecting and extending and committing ourselves towards experimentation, we're sort of narrowing down the way in which the arts have um, been supported in this pan pandemic. Grace, you're very concerned, obviously, with um, contemporary arts relationship to social transformation. So how do you see this context that we're currently in impacting in that way? So, yeah, such a mucky, murky, icky, tricky question, Max. I mean, we're seeing the convergence of a public health crisis, an economic crisis and a social crisis right at the same time that we also have an ecological crisis on our hands. Um, and all of these issues are being politicised um, in ways that are, you know, really marginalising the arts and making it incredibly difficult for advocates in the arts to make a case for the value of support. Um, I think that, you know, artists, are incredibly good at adapting, as Marnie has said, at resilience, um, at pivoting. And we're seeing that in all kinds of ways. I mean, incredible explosion of um, digital and online activities is one right now <laughs> that we're all participating in. Um, but I think that the implications of this are going to be long lasting. Um, and I, I think, you know, we've been struggling in terms of funding for the arts, particularly in Australia, um, already for quite a long time. Um, and the expectation that the, the private sector will pick up the slack of government sort of decreasing funding um, hasn't been realised. And I think that um, this context is going to make it even harder. Um, what I will say, though, is um, like Marnie, I teach um, and I'm talking to my students all the time about um, what they're experiencing, what forms of art practice and connection um, they're seeing, how they're finding, you know, this um, experience, uh, particularly their reliance on the online and digital. Um, and, you know, I don't know if it's a generational thing, but they are um, very positive about the potential. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's interesting to me that, you know, internet art was a daggy term for a long time. Um, and there's a real sense of snobbery in the art world about things like Instagram artists. Um, and I do wonder whether one upshoot out of this could be um, a sort of levelling or democratisation of 
some of our attitudes towards um, contemporary art practices that don't situate themselves in the gallery, in the museum, um, in the traditional ways that we've been used to. Uh, I won't keep rambling on now, I'll let someone else speak. Thanks, Grace. Um, I think it is inevitable that we will issue into a, a new um, landscape and a new way of working. Um, Eugenia, how are the communities that you are working with responding to our COVID landscape and, it's, and what might be beyond? Sure, sure. I mean, I guess one of the things that I see um, a lot, you know, there's a lot of people doing, uh, well, moving to digital platforms to be able to share their art, um, which I think is really wonderful. Um, for me as an introvert, I find it really tiring to be kind of constantly um, on display or constantly um, having to engage with screen and, and that sort of stuff. Um, you know, I think one of the, the things that really strikes me about the response, you know, being able to uh, pivot, as Marnie said, and use digital um, platforms, you know, really relies on on two things. One of the things that, that Marnie raised earlier, which is for a lot of um, the communities that I work with, their work is collaborative. And that's, you know, a part of um, it, it just a different way of doing things. And, and that's not... Um, well, sometimes that's about art practice and sometimes that's about um, uh, uh, cultural ontologies and the ways that we do things. So that's one of the concerning things that there's, you know, a, a whole group of people that aren't able to um, continue or um, there's a disruption to that practice of being able to to work collaboratively um, for, you know, some Blackfellas. Um, a lot of their work may require consulting and working with elders. And as uh, Aboriginal people over the age of 50 are a very vulnerable group for a whole range of different reasons, um, mostly due to systemic racism um, and the stresses and traumas of colonisation um, and systemic racism in the health industry. But, um, you know, that uh, ability to be able to go and have those conversations is reduced. Um, the ability to be able to go back to country and work and move around in that way is curtailed. So um, that ability to, to work collaboratively is, is it can be challenging for some people. Not not everybody. There's lots of um, musicians that I know that are doing you know live concerts that kind of thing. Um, but the second thing you know that I think about a lot of are the people on the the fringes that aren't able to do that pivot because of a lack of access to digital platforms. I know several people, and I want to move away from just speaking about an arts context. I know lots and lots of people who don't have access, you know, to internet. I know lots of older people who are um, unable to do online shopping or unable to do a range of different things, um, uh, you know, I know lots of people who uh, live on the poverty line and so don't have regular access to phone credit to be able to access the internet via their smartphone. They certainly wouldn't have the internet at home. They certainly wouldn't have um, a computer. And I think that, you know, we're also seeing 
you know, I, I talked about a pre-COVID era where public space is really policed and, you know, particular groups of people are policed within that about how they can behave, what they look like. You know, there's a real fear around them. And we can see that that is increasing, you know, as Nikos spoke about, the response, the, diff, the very different response in those Chinese people being taken to offshore detention and uh, the non-Chinese people just being, you know, welcomed and put up in five-star hotels is really quite striking and, and one that I think a lot of people have forgotten. We've seen a lot of increase in violence towards uh, Asian people uh, on the street in public space. We have seen, um, you know, Aboriginal people in Alice Springs being uh, moved on in public space by police, the police coming in quite harshly on people uh, being empowered and emboldened by this uh, climate of fear to be, to, to going to those public spaces and, and violently moving on Aboriginal people. And we have also seen, um, uh, again, in Alice Springs and in, and in Central Australia, you know, um, the policing of alcohol shops and who can come in and, and, uh, and who can go enter into those places. Um, and that's been along race-based lines and, and again, quite um, vitriolic and violent. And, you know, even here in Victoria, there was a, a brother that was... Um, uh, uh, remanded um, for several weeks um, through essentially a string of errors. Um, he was not required to go to court because of COVID-19, so he didn't appear in court, but then the court issued a, um, a warrant for his arrest. He was homeless and then was picked up and you know the, that sort of string of errors is one of those things where you, um, as Aboriginal people, we understand intimately how that string of errors um, is based on racism. Um, and so I'm really concerned about a range of different people. There are, um, you know, issues um, with the safety and vulnerability of uh, people from refugee and asylum seeker backgrounds. Um, also, people with a disability. Um, I'm in contact with uh, an older gentleman who can't access online shopping, has to go do his shopping, but um, has mobility issues and um, is really, 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 really struggling with that. Um, so I'm really concerned about those people who are going to be particularly vulnerable um, during this time. Thanks, Eugenia. Um, Noor, could I also ask you to reflect or continue that discussion? I know that obviously as an artist, um, as a member of the Eleven Collective, collaboration is something that is very important to your work, but also the questions of inclusion and exclusion that Eugenia was talking about. Um, um, we've got only a few more minutes before we get to our third and final question, but if you sure. have... Um, yeah, I'd like to also add to what Eugenia was saying that I think my biggest concern during this pandemic has been the people that we can't see and hear and the people that don't have access and not just so you know of course um, thinking about that in the social context and um, within communities but also um, you know there's been a lot of talk about um, 
for artists and a lot of artists losing their jobs and then that, you know, how can an artist transition their work online and discussing um, different ways that artists can contribute creatively um, on online platforms but not really considering audiences and the limited access that some audiences um, have to internet, as Eugenia was saying, of, you know, assessed um, applications for grants in the past and um, been in discussions with local councils where there have been, um, you know, projects, whole projects set around uh, youth who will participate um, in the person. This is pre-COVID-19. Um, but then go home and do a series of activities on their laptop. Um, and it never, it was never a consideration to them that some people don't have laptops. Many people don't have access to the internet. So what we're seeing here, I think, in the COVID-19 um, pandemic is the issues of class um, are being magnified. And, you know, so although, like, I work with a lot of artists and my life work is in the arts and there's a great concern around um, how, you know, we move forward from this scenario, I'm just as concerned or more concerned about our communities and audiences and their access um, and how they're being represented or how then they are might be represented but not seeing themselves being represented in the public domain because everything's um, gone silent for them. If you don't have the internet um, and you may have a television, all you're going to be seeing is what is perpetuated in the majority kind of commercial marketplace um, and that's not necessarily going to reflect um, the communities and the people that are being disadvantaged um, during this period. Um, so, yeah, it's, yeah, there's a couple of things that uh, I think going to really um, come out after this um, pandemic sort of rolls over. We're really going to see perhaps um, a disconnect between um, audiences and artists um, and yeah, just there's, I feel like there's going to be a gap. There's going to be a big gap somewhere in the representation of people's experiences because of non-access to, um, technology and, um, internet and so on. I think it's a really, um, you know, salient point, I think, to think about audiences and communities and how art might indeed reimagine a renewed public space and the cultivation of communities as we come out of our COVID um, landscape and issue into a kind of new world. Um, so perhaps to conclude on a more upbeat cultural perspective, um, um, what role might art play in all of this? Um, it will be an important question for us in the year ahead. Um, what is the role of art in dealing with these tensions and conflicts? Um, but as well, what are the opportunities and the potentials um, for artists? Um, and how might art practices provoke, respond, or reflect these cultural contexts and scenarios? So I'm not sure who'd like to, it's a big question, who'd like to, to dive in first? Um, I can go first. Uh, you know, I, I just want to say that I'm a 
you know, really big believer in um, art as survival. And I think, you know, for um, a lot of Aboriginal people, um, that the idea that, you know, we are in a time of uh, pandemic, that things are uh, scary and dangerous, we have survived that, you know. We are survivors of um, extreme violence and genocide. And we also need to be aware that, you know, many Indigenous peoples across the world are also survivors of, you know, germ warfare, of, um, you know, the kinds of uh, health crises that has been brought by contact with people, um, contact with the colonisers, whether that was um, by design, and it was by design in lots of places. The case of smallpox in blankets is uh, one that happened both in North America as well as here in Australia, which many people don't realise um, is, a, is a, a truth and a fact. Um, and so that sense of survival, you know, for um, when I talk about Aboriginal ways of doing and our way of doing is about being collaborative and all of those sorts of things, you know, the other part to that is that our art and culture is very much a part of um, our everyday life and it is a part of our um, the way that we um, maintain our a sense of self as well as our knowledges, how we how we pass those things on, how we transmit um, uh, knowledge and culture. And so, um, you know, when I think about survival and I think about the role of art within that, you know, we, um, I think, I think there's a lot of um, hope to be found within the role of art in being able to um, provide comfort, to be able to provide joy, but also to allow us to creatively think about ways that, you know, we can make change. Um, we've talked a lot about a whole range of negative things um, but, you know, the role of art to be able to reimagine those things, to be able to creatively um, deal or, you know, roll with the punches um, and be able to imagine new futures. Um, I was looking at, well, I was thinking about Indigenous futurisms. I was just reading up on it, particularly in a literary context. And there's, you know... Um, uh, academics in North America who talk about, you know, we have, we've survived our own, you know, that kind of um, sense of, uh, well, that genocide, you know, we're, we've, we've come through to the other side of that. And so when we think about the future, it's, it is that thing about hope. It is that thing about, um, about being able to deal with those things um, and move forward. I think um, Grace has certainly been in the last few weeks, I think a lot of evidence of artists really thinking creatively, imagining new futures and um, creating joy and pleasure as Eugenia has suggested. Um, how do you see the role that art might play as we come out of this context? 
Um, thanks, Max, and thanks, Eugenia. That um, was really lovely to hear you talk about, um, particularly the ways that art can be part of our daily life um, and culture, and not necessarily something that's sort of distinct and, and separated from that. And I think um, during COVID, we're seeing people locked up in their homes for inordinate amounts of time. And I think that um, there's an incredible kind of everyday creativity in that. I certainly know that um, me and my daughter have never done so much drawing and painting and crafting and music and dance. And um, I, so I'm kind of excited about this celebration of art and creativity as part of our daily lives during this time as a way of getting through, um, as a way of stimulating, as a way of um, connecting to um, our stories, family stories, histories, um, and connecting with our communities and family as well. Um, but as I said, um, talking to my students, um, you know, through them, I'm seeing this sort of great excitement about um, the potential to make work um, without the boundaries of the local. And I certainly think everything is situated locally and we have to understand our local context um, in terms of the politics, the histories, the, the culture, the society. Um, but in order for artists to reach um, really different audiences, more diverse audiences, um, potentially sell their work um, more broadly, I think there's some great potential that's sort of coming through from here um, but always I've I've always felt that art is a, a really powerful way for us to reflect critically on the world that we live in to ask hard questions um, to challenge the status quo and that's where I think artists are going to have the biggest role in the months weeks <laughs> days and years to come Nikos, you mentioned before you spoke about cosmopolitanism and um, um, artists, you know, um, working with questions of, um, I guess, hospitality and, um, and engagement. How do you see the role of art? It's a good question. We began this conversation talking about fear and the dispersal of fear, kind of ambient fear. I think it's also, as we go forward, thinking about the role of art, we can see art also operating in more ambient ways. You know, the idea that fear was everywhere and could be anywhere, art could also now be, as Grace has just suggested, more, more dispersed within and spawning from everyday life. And I think the options are quite extreme because on the one hand, there could be a retreat into private spaces. On the other hand, it could be a reform of the way in which publicness is experienced. And we've certainly already, as has been mentioned, seen a re-editing of works, you know, digital formatting of works, so reducing of scale of works so that they're more within the attention span of the media and of the internet age, and also rethinking of how people operate financially, environmentally, and also where they belong as a consequence of all these web Zooming relationships that they're having around the world now. Who are your partners? Who are your friends? Who are your actual proximate people? And so this, as you suggest, I mean, has profound ways of profound impact on the ways we think about cosmopolitanism and has profound impact on, on our local sense of our environment, our communities, because a lot of the art, especially art that had a very outward public face to it, emphasised the idea of hospitality, 
And that hospitality was face to face in terms of its intimacy and often involved collaboration, which was skin to skin. Now the face to face and skin to skin in the near future, if not who knows how long, will be mediated either by screens or at best by masks for a long period of time. And so we'll need to rethink about how this transforms our sense of presence in public spaces. If we are masked and filtered and mediated, if we are close by each other, but only connecting to each other with other technologies by other prostheses. So this gives us a chance to rethink the way in which we interact with each other in public space and the opportunities, therefore, as has been suggested about an aesthetics and sociality in a post-pandemic public that utilises those technologies so that we can continue to interact with each other but not have to perhaps touch each other as much as we want to touch each other. What's your take on those questions of mediation and proximity? Um, actually, I just, I'll just be very brief here. Um, I'm actually interested in what art will be made as a document for history. And, you know, the work that artists do and how nuanced artists are in their observations of society, um, of their personal histories, um, of social and political discourses that are going on around them. I, I really feel like um, we will get a deeper understanding um, of what was actually going on through the art practice and um, the work that artists are producing in this moment. And I think that's going to be a very important, um, I guess, documentation of this period of time. So how artists will make their work um, and how they will be able to distribute that work post 9-11 will be something, um, I guess, that will unravel um, as we come out of this. Um, yeah, but I'm interested in the history that's being made in the present moment. And Marnie, um, before we go to questions, um, do you have any concluding remarks? Um, Very briefly, I think, um, you know, the discussion today has been, you know, quite uh, large. <laughs> I think there's a lot of um, exciting opportunities for cu cultural institutions to take on the challenge of what, um, you know, art is, what cultural practice is, and the role of art institutions in creating and supporting public culture. So, you know, just to kind of lead back to your, you know, your project or our project, Max, in terms of who's afraid of public space and curating um, sort of new forms of practice to explore these questions. I think there's, you know, a lot of great opportunities to think about what, what that means um, in terms of that um, critical response, provocation, intervention, but also contemplation beauty. And, um, you know, uh, I guess appreciating the good things that have come out of the pandemic and the care and kindness, um, the attention to things that Eugenia is talking about in terms of um, culture and survival as well. So I think, um, I think there's a lot of things that we can take forward into the future. Thanks. Thank you, Marty. That's wonderful. Um, I've, I've had a note from Miriam that we've had a couple of questions which have already been, been covered by our panellists. So um, 
Are there any final questions or um, burning questions or comments that you would like to make to each other? Or otherwise we, we can go to wrap up, but just giving everyone a chance if there's any last um, comments or questions you might have for each other. No, well, in that case, um, I will um, just wanted to say thank you um, so much for joining us for this first um, think tank session um, to inaugurate our project, Who's Afraid of Public Space? Um, we really appreciate the time that you have um, made to attend the program, and we really look forward to you continuing to join us uh, in contributing to the conversation ahead. We do hope that we'll be able to gather and congregate um, uh, as an assembly of people in the future, but we will also be continuing further thinking tanks uh, in uh, digital context as well. Um, I would like if I could just to thank our panel in particular. So Eugenia Flynn, Grace McQuilton, Marnie Madam, Noor Gemby, and Nikos Papasiadis. Um, really, it's been a wonderful, very rich conversation and a very expansive way to consider the realm of public space and public culture and for us to um, have a foundation upon which to focus those discussions in the period ahead. Um, I'd also like to thank Georgia Knight and Chelsea Turner for their wonderful work interpreting the discussion this afternoon. And as well, I would like to acknowledge sincerely my curatorial and public programs colleagues at ACCA, uh, Annika Christensen, Miriam Kelly, and Bianca Winata Putri for their significant contributions to the development of this program, and to Bianca for her outstanding coordination and technical logistics. Um, and also to Sarah Firth for um, capturing today's proceedings through the fantastic live drawing, which is down to the last lower right corner of the page. So it's, I look forward to very much to, um, to perusing that post the session. Um, we, um, yeah, we do look forward to welcoming you again uh, as, we, when, as and when we are able to come out of hibernation. Um, we will be distributing a short survey to assist with future deliveries of these programs. So we would very much appreciate your participation and the survey will pop up um, automatically in your browser once you have this, this webinar. So again, um, please, um, can we wave? I think clapping is now waving to the participants to say thank you to our participants um, and our contributors today. Um, thank you also to our guests, our audience for joining us um, and please keep safe and well.